0: Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, in Psalm 34. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears attend their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled in Isaiah 8. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make an offense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame for it's better if god should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than what for what is than for doing what is wrong may god add his blessing to the reading of first peter chapter 3 we've assembled for fellowship with god in his word fellowship with god is your birthright it is yours By God's grace, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you at the cross, and fellowship is broken through personal sin. Would you remove that, please? Both of them, yeah. Thank you. Personal sin is uh, a curse that breaks us down. And it breaks fellowship with God. And I'm not saying, I don't even believe that that's something you necessarily or I will feel, but it's something that is real. And it is the destruction of your spiritual life. Personal sin is when we think, say, or do something contrary to the character of God, uh, partially defined by the Apostle Paul when he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That which contradicts God's glory, God's holiness. Parallel to that, if we walk in the light, 1 John chapter 1, verse six, if we walk in the light as he, God himself, is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that fellowship is uh, quite a gift. It's quite a precious treasure to be mindful of. Fellowship is not necessarily to be seen biblically as a state, I know we sometimes think of it that way, that I'm in fellowship or I'm not in fellowship. Fellowship is an activity. It is having something in common with God. It's walking in the light with God's righteousness in common with God in our practice. And this is a miracle that we sinful people, not yet resurrected, still, still dealing with our sinful nature and its temptations and the attack of the world and the devil. We are able, despite these uh, weaknesses and these attacks we are able to walk worthy of our calling to work out our salvation with fear and trembling the sanctification work of God is why uh, we still exist we're still here in this life um, to to walk by the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh I always give you a moment for silent prayer a self-evaluation if we would judge ourselves Paul tells the Corinthians we would not be judged let's pray Our Father, when we're mindful of your grace, the only right footing that we can stand on is thanksgiving, is gratitude that you have saved us by your grace, that you have considered us, that you made us in the first place. The alternative that you could have done is not make us, but here we are made in your image, bearing your likeness, with the purpose of representing you in creation and being about your work before men and the angels. And so we praise you for that creation and the new creation in Christ. Father, we uh, don't think of these things as often as perhaps we should. We fall into that challenge that the writer of Hebrews gives to not neglect our so great salvation. Father, help us consider these things and remember from what we've studied tonight, who we are, what you expect of us, the marvelous and high calling to uh, walk worthy of this calling, even as we consider the failures of national Israel in the 7th century B.C. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the section of Isaiah, chapters 28 through 35, we could call the Lord of History section. And we're in the six woes of this 28 through 33, Isaiah chapters 28 through 33. And last time we were together was a long time ago on Isaiah. And every time I work through... A couple of things, interesting things. Every time I look at Isaiah, I think, "Oh, we got to climb. That is a hill I have to go climb." That's when I look at it from the outside. When I start climbing, I'm always so grateful. Within just a few minutes of beginning my study, and then um, as it just builds as we go, and I just love the book of Isaiah. But it is work. It is a labor of love to pursue the structure and ask, what is what is his structural arrangement? You know, when you tell someone a story, the structure is really straightforward, right? You tell the setting of the story and you tell, introduce the characters, bring out at some point, after a little character development, bring out the conflict of the story, otherwise there's no story. What's the conflict that we have to resolve? And then you have the development further of the characters, of the villain, and the hero, the protagonist, and how they're going to resolve the conflict. Ultimately, if it's a good story, the hero vanquishes the uh, the, the, the villain who brought in the conflict, Most often and most compelling through personal sacrifice somehow, that person with virtue sacrifices something of himself or even himself to vanquish the enemy, and then you have the resolution and everyone lived happily ever after. I mean, that's how you tell a story. That's how God's telling his story. And so the structure of a story narrative is really straightforward. We can, we can identify these things. We're looking for these things. To tell the structure of a poem of judgment in a collection of judgment poems that all fit together like proteins within a cell, that is a different Task and uh, it's very challenging here in Isaiah, and this is this is the way I understand the structure of this chunk in chapters twenty-eight through thirty-three, the six woes in the Lord of History section. Remember the context historically is the Assyrian crisis. God has brought the Assyrians to judge the Southern Kingdom. He has brought the Assyrians to judge the Northern Kingdom, and that'll come over into the Southern Kingdom in the tenure of the kings. Uh, that that uh, under whom uh, isaiah served and those kings included isaiah and ahaz and hezekiah and manasseh the kings of the southern kingdom of judah that and, and over the entire to- term of isaiah's ministry ahaz ahaz is the king he speaks to in isaiah 7 therefore listen house of david the lord will give you a, a, a prophecy and you have the prophecy of the virgin who conceived and give birth to a son so this is the time in which th- this- these things happen. The-, the big context is that God gave Israel himself, and he gave them his instruction, his word, and he said, I want you to walk with me, and here's the way you can do it through the instructions of the Torah. But I am being redundant when I say the instructions of the Torah, because Torah means instruction. And so God had told them what he wanted, and they had uh, said, we'll do it, and then they didn't. And the arrangement of God's story is furthering and advancing the conflict that we see introduced in Genesis 3. There's a a problem with us. And even if God gives us word by word, step by step instructions for how to live, even if he has a special consecrated feast once a week, even if we have a special celebration, a consecrated feast once a month with the Feast of the New Moon, even if we have punctuated events throughout the year where we're adding to the weekly Sabbath feast and the the monthly New Moon feast, we're adding all these things, we still are gonna mess it up. And that's largely the story of God's dealings with national Israel under the bilateral or conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant from Mount Sinai. And so this is a section in history where God is showing the consequences he said he would bring if they wouldn't walk with him. And it's sad and it's horrible to contemplate that they're in idolatry and God is bringing discipline. Now he's not calling them out so much for idolatry in this section of it. It's that they went into idolatry. He's bringing national catastrophe through the Assyrian crisis, a military invasion and partial conquest, almost a complete conquest of the southern kingdom. And the next step in the thing would be to do what the Assyrians did in the book of Jonah, to go back to God And say, what did we do? Oh, we messed up and repent and come to him and throw ourselves at his feet. And that's what you're supposed to do when daddy gives you a spanking. You're supposed to break yourself down and come back and be back in fellowship when you get a correction. But what they do is they say, well, we can't go back to God because we don't believe in him. So we'll go to Egypt. And so, the obvious response of repentance from correction is not being, uh, is not being mad. They're not, it's not happening. And so, they're, ha- they're going to Egypt. And so, God is correcting them. And that seems pretty complicated. I know there's a lot involved in that to, to come to that point where you understand what Isaiah is talking about. But that's what's happening in chapter 30, where he's talking to the rebellious children. So, if you look at the twofold structure, 28 through 29, you have woe to the drunkards of Ephraim, woe to Ariel, and woe to to the divisors of plans without the Lord is the first piece. Uh, oops. In, uh, in 28 and 29. And then he does again, woe to rebellious children who execute a plan that is not his. That's chapter 30 that we're looking at tonight and next time. And woe to those who go down to Egypt, and woe to the destroyer who will be the Assyrians. And so you have uh, God's six places where he says, woe in this section, then it sounds a lot like Isaiah 5 when you had the woes in Isaiah 5. And so moral failure because of a rejection of a relationship would be chapters 29, uh, 28 29 is one way to summarize it. And then the attempt to find relief from divine discipline and human agency. And these together, rejection of God and then an embrace of an alternative solution, this will speak to your life and my life every single day. If God is bringing discipline, don't make it worse by trying to find a solution to that discipline in some method that he hasn't given you. And it isn't that it's, well, this is a neutral option. I could just do this instead. It's not a neutral option. You're turning your back and doubling down on on foolishness from God. and, And the expectation you should have is that the discipline will intensify. That then, okay, then it's going to get worse. So God brings the discipline of the Assyrians. Well, let's solve the Assyrians. No, you solve that God is disciplining you. You don't attack the paddle. You go after the one who's holding it. And that's what's happening in, in the story. And so just think about the way divine discipline works in our individual lives. I know we want, we have a, we're patriots. We live in a country, in a context, in a, in a nation that God has providentially given us. And he's working through all the arrangements and affairs of history. And this is a unique event, the United States Experiment. And we want to take the national principles God's giving national Israel with national discipline and apply those to us. But if you really want to do the analogy, it would be better to think of yourself like Egypt or Assyria. And the reason I say that is because Israel is the only, the only covenant nation. There is no national covenant with the United States, between God and, and, and the United States. And covenant theology wants to do that and superimpose non-biblical covenants and, and intuit things that the Bible doesn't say. But we Bible-believing Christians watching the text closely, we can't do that. We can't make that theological leap and do nation for nation. Well, if, if Israel disobeyed God and they got disciplined, then if we disobey, obey God, we can, we can expect the same treatment. We shouldn't expect the same treatment, but you can see God dealing with Gentile nations through the scriptures, and he does call them to account, and he does does bring fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And there is a need to look at God dealing with nations. You certainly should. So I just ask you to be careful, but it's better to apply God's personal works with the apple of his eye. It's better to connect that with what God is doing in your individual spiritual life. When God brings discipline to you, what is your response? It's kind of a no brainer, right? But we don't always feel like humbling ourselves. My prayer for you is that before God's discipline makes you feel like humbling yourself, you get smart and do it on the front end because the discipline is, uh, it's, he's really good at it. He's a genius at bringing the necessary correction to bring us to that state of humility. Now understand, there is a narrow path God's calling you to walk. It is the path of humility, walking humbly before your God and saying, God is God and I am not. It's the humble path of saying, God, you have your way. You're better at wanting things than I am. I choose to want what you want. I don't feel that way necessarily, but I choose that. I ask you to help me in that, wanting what you want. I'm going to walk in this humble path that says that you are God and I am not. I want to humble myself before you. And, and and it's really about a relationship between you and God. There is no other relationship that encro- encroaches onto this. The way you and God work. The next thing is how God wants you to treat others for His sake, and it's still that's still about you and God. And so when you're when you're thinking about this relationship thing, I think that narrow path of humility is easily stepped off into arrogance, into selfishness, into having my own way. Thou not not as Thou will, but as I will, O oh God. That kind of thing. And and that's the place. Of divine discipline and it isn't that you physically did something necessarily although the the attitude in the heart goes into the hands pretty quickly it's not just the physical actions that we do it's the heart that God is after and so you want to watch out for that problem of mental attitude sins and even the part we could talk about Israel's idolatry how do we get into idolatry we give to what is not God what should only belong to God and we do it with ourselves have mine own way O Lord Right, that's idolatry. It's you are the you are the idol. It's and that and it, we all need to deal with this and tell the truth about this, and this is the question of faith. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? And are you not like all of us struggling with walking by faith and not by sight? The section that we're in is chapter 30 where we're having God call out the rebellious children. He calls them actually sons of stubbornness or stubborn sons in chapter 30. Woe to those who execute a plan that is not mine. And in the few moments that remain with us this evening, being sensitive as I am to the fact that the sun went down like three hours ago. Literally, it did like exactly three hours ago. And uh, we, we can only, Pastor Dave, we can only do so much. Um, if we go to Isaiah chapter 30, everybody mindful that we're coming to the frontier? You're, we're rapidly approaching chapter 39 and the big turning point in Isaiah? Yeah, we're, we're headed and the narrative section. We're almost done with this portion of Isaiah because we've already done um, the uh, the Hezekiah, uh, Rob Shaka discussion. But... He says, and this is in the New American Standard, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation." So notice that they're, di- they're running from God's discipline through the Assyrians to the Egyptians, and God says, okay, I'll spank you with that. <laughs> it's a different kind of spanking, but it's going to hurt. For their princes are its own, and their ambassadors arrive at Hama- uh, Hannes, It's Hanes. Uh, Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. And then it switches the oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev through a land of distress and anguish from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps. When you just read through, you miss that. But they're carrying their treasures on the humps of camels. Do you have a visual image of that? <laughs> to a people who cannot profit them even Egypt whose help is vain and empty therefore i have called her rahab rahab who has been exterminated now if you are like me and i know a lot of you are if not all of you that stuff that we just read is not super clear <laughs> it's not super obvious and can't we just read the epistles i mean i don't understand everything in the epistles but i understand a lot of what he's saying and it turns out that when, listen, when you study the Bible and you have things that you read in English, you're just kind of like, I really am not quite sure what to do with that. There are a couple of decisions that you could do with this. You could, you could do a lot of us do and say, uh, I can't do this poetry stuff. I'm, I can't do it. Then you just put it away and, and do something that's a little more obvious. Another approach is to get mystical and say, whatever occurs to me about what I'm reading must be what God means and we do a Holy Spirit hermeneutic. Well, the Holy Spirit in me said that that I'm supposed to focus on Rahab the prostitute and, and and we go somewhere that the text isn't going. But you all know what the right answer is, that, okay there's some, uh, uh, there's upturned earth here. There's something to dig into. I see that there's some excavation we need to do. And then you go digging and you dig and you say, well, we, we don't have our excavation tools on site, but they're coming. And then we go, and when we get to the excavation of the gold mine, we say, oh, there's a treasure here. That And that's what, that's what the hard stuff in the Bible, I think, in my experience does there's there's riches here god is hiding the treasure and it's the glory of kings to seek it out and so that's what kind of happens here in this passage reading on to just read through chapter 30 now go write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever for this is a rebellious people false sons sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the lord who say to the seers you must not see visions And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Does it sound like Israel is rejecting the word of God? right? That's their problem. Can we apply that to us today? Absolutely. But let's look at our own individual lives. In what sense do I, are we rejecting the word of God in our spiritual lives? Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you've rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity, this sin will be on you. Like a branch about, to, a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall, right on that wall, right out there, Uh, And a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or or, or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved, and quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. Listen to what the Holy One of Israel said again in verse 15. In repentance and rest you will be saved. Rest in me, that's faith. Repentance, you're going the wrong way, come back the right way. There's a change of mind, there's a change of orientation. Come back to me is what he's saying. And quietness and trust is your strength. You're not gonna get it by going to make alliances with Egypt or anyone else. You need to come back to me. That's what he's saying. And he's got the light on, and he's got the coffee hot, and he's like, come on back. And they won't. But you were not willing. And you said no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee and we will ride on swift horses, you say. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. So you're going to keep on trying to find a way to beat my discipline, and you're going to ride away and run away on horses. Okay, I've got faster horses. They're coming, and the Assyrians—they're mounted people. One thousand will flee at the at the threat of one man. This this is echoing what God promised in Israel in their obedience that. That, they would, that one of them would, would cause a thousand to flee of the enemy. One thousand of them will flee at the, at the one man. You will flee at, this, at the threat of five until your whole country is going to run at five, five people. Until you're left as, a, uh, left as a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on a hill. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, right? They're going to be left as a flag on a mountaintop. We know what that means, right? <laughs> no, they're a sign. Their whole purpose now, they were supposed to be a a pointer to God and now they're a reminder, a marker in the world that God is gonna be glorified and he's gonna be honored and you can do it willingly or you can do it in opposition to him but either way, God is gonna be glorified. You don't wanna be a proverb. You wanna read them. You want to read the Proverbs and get wisdom and make the decision based on what God's word said and not make the wrong decision, having the word in your grasp and then making the wrong choice and then on the other side of it saying, oh no, the consequence, I don't like that. I don't like the, the consequence of foolishness and I have to live in it and, and everyone who, who walks by and says, oh, that's a mess over there. That person becomes a proverb. Learn the proverb before you make the decision, then make the decision according to the proverb and then you won't be one is kind of the idea, and that's what Israel's is facing. In verse 18, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. There are so many little notes in this, in this collection here that just resonate for us. How blessed are all those who long for him. O oh, people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. See, this is eschatological. This hasn't happened yet, and they haven't broken themselves down before God, before his Messiah, and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They haven't done it as a nation, but they will. They will look on him who they pierced. He will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Then... He will give you rain for the seed which you will sow. Sounds like they're still farming in the land for some reason. Why is that happening if this is in heaven? Because it's not. They've sown the, the, the seed in the ground and he'll give you bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous. On the, that day, your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Physical blessings of a future prosperous, repentant national Israel coming to Yahweh and getting blessing in the land. Hasn't happened since the Assyrian crisis. Not really. Also, the oxen and the donkeys, which work the ground, will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. That was a dark note in the middle of of some pretty thoughts, right? The light of the moon will be the light of the sun will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter. Oh, there's a, this is the end times, big, big astronomical things that come with the second advent, right? Like the light of the seven days and the day of the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he's inflicted. So somehow there's slaughter and there's massive violence and yet there's glory and there's astronomical signs and there is peace between Yahweh and his people behold the name of the lord comes from a remote place burning in his anger and dense in his smoke his lips are filled with indignation his tongue is like a consuming fire his breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and put in the jaws of that people's of of the people's the bridle which leads to ruin this poetry is killing it's amazing the, the imagery he's using. He's putting a bridle on the nations to lead them to ruin. <clears throat> you will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. That's Isaiah chapter two. This is the glorious future of the kingdom of Messiah where Yahweh is on earth ruling from Mount Zion in a human being, as a human being. And that is the destiny that we're all tending toward, and it is a glorious future, and it is promised again and again and again through the scriptures. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard, and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger, and the flame of consuming fire, and cloudbursts downpour toward hailstones. For, as, for at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with the rod." And every blow of the rod of punishment, which the Lord will lay on him, will be with the music of tambourines and lyres. (laughs) This doesn't sound like two things that go together. This sounds to me like a mincemeat pie. I mean, I like it, but it doesn't sound good. Meat and sweetness, that's just, but it, it works. And that's what you have here is that God is bringing judgment while he's bringing salvation. Every blow of the rod of punishment in verse 32 which will, will be the music of tambourines and lyres. And in battles, brandishing weapons, he will fight them. For Topheth has long been ready. Doesn't that speak to your heart? Topheth has long been ready. Why don't we just transliterate stuff, fellas? Just tell us what the Hebrew word is and we'll pretend like that means something. It means the place of, of fiery judgment. Topheth has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. So you have God's restoration of national Israel, and, and you've got the mountaintops of prophecy. When is this? What well, seems like at the end. But you also have God dealing with Assyria, the instrument of his of his judgment and discipline, that will be uh, near-term, he dealt with Assyria, and long-term. The 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 fate of all the nations in their rebellion against God. All right, so that's, that's just reading through Isaiah 30, which I know you've all done many, many, many times. And it's also very challenging. I think chapter 30 breaks down like this way. I had some help from Alec, J. Alec Motyer, who's, the, as I've told you, is probably the best English-speaking commentator on the book of Ephesians um, in recent, maybe ever, or in, in recent time. And uh, and I don't agree with everything he said, but that's how commentaries work. But But this is tough. And I think the structure works this way. You have Egypt is not any help in the contemporary circumstance. And then in verses eight through 17, you have the coming human events that we read about where they're rejecting the word and they get a consequence for rejecting the word and it's it's like a near-term future prophecy and then you have the coming divine events of 18 through 26 the glory and restoration that God has promised and that I think is a long term future prophecy and then you have the contemporary events that Assyria is really no ultimate threat you don't need to fight Assyria God is going to judge Assyria you need to stop fighting me is really the the message But in the middle of this center-seeking structure, this chiastic arrangement, you have the rejection of the word and God's judgment for that, for these people, but you also have God's blessing and glory that he's promising them. And this is an amazing picture of God's grace. We say no to God's word all the time, whether it's, I don't want to take it in or whether I know I should do what it's saying, but I don't want to do it. We say no to the word. There's a rejection that we struggle with of God's word and various facets and the various challenges of our lives. We know this is true. The apostle Paul says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your struggle against sin. We, we know what God's word says and we choose either to ignore it or to uh, ignore its intake or ignore its application. And and on that topic of application, this is wisdom. Wisdom is not that I know how to do it so much as that I know and do it. I know how, that's the skill, but then I practice it and I do what the Word says. This is a really challenging thing that you'll find in your life and the lives of others, the application of God's Word to the circumstance. I know what God's Word says. I think I understand at least something of what it means, but am I willing to step out in faith? I've trusted him that this word is true. But do I now trust him in the event where I say, this is what his word says. This is the choice I obviously am supposed to make. And then I follow through as God's representative on earth, as his image bearer, and choose what his word has directed me to choose in the situation. I'm watching various tragic rejections of God's word right at the point of application. I take it in, I take it in, I take it in, and when it comes time to do it, well, I don't feel like it. I mean, you surely don't mean I'm supposed to do that in this case. Like this, well, you, if, if I would apply God's word, for example, on marriage and divorce, if I would apply God's word on this, that would mean that I'd have to be uncomfortable. Yeah, right. The little discomfort's gonna raise you up. It's gonna strengthen you but I don't, I don't want to be uncomfortable, right? The cross, Jesus didn't want to be uncomfortable, but are we gonna take up our cross daily and follow him? See, it's, and I understand there are reasons we feel like not doing what God said, but that's, that's not the way the math works. My feelings are, that's what you feel like, but that's not what God's word is saying. We're gonna only work through the first little chunk here of verses one through seven tonight. We have in verses one through five, the embassy of the people of Judah going down to recruit help for Egypt. That's what he's saying in verse 1-5. through 5, That there is already, they're there or they're sending an embassy to Egypt from Judah. And then you have this oracle of the beasts of the Negev. The route that the embassy would take to go to Egypt through the Negev which is I guess ironic because it's the tougher way to go. And that's how they apparently would go. So verses 1-7 through 7 come together to mean that Egypt is really no help. That's the best I can do uh, with this chunk. He says, woe, hoy, to the stubborn sons. It doesn't say children. It says sons. Now you could say, well, but that would include sons and daughters. That's fine. It would include sons and daughters, but the word is sons. Sons. And he says, woe to sons of stubbornness or stubborn sons and your Bible might say rebellious. Okay. But in what sense are they rebellious? headed, having my own way. I must have my way. Woe to stubborn sons declares the Lord. We might as well just say amen to that one and just go home. That is going to be a problem. The stubborn son that will not bow, bend the knee to God and say, God, have your way. God has a way of making that uncomfortable. And he says here, woe to him. These children in Judah who work a plan, but not from me, who uh, literally I saw they do a plan, but not from me. It's There's a plan out there. God has a plan for them. They don't want that plan. They want a different plan. They pour out a libation, but not my spirit is literally what that says. It doesn't say from my spirit. It just says not my spirit, lo ruhi, not my spirit. And you could say from my spirit because it parallels from me here. But notice, pour out a libation. Your Bible might put a little note that that's what that literally says in Hebrew. But everyone agrees that this means to conclude a, a peace treaty. Because you would pour out a libation, apparently, as a ritual that goes along. So that's a synonym. The pouring out of the libation sort of offering thing is synonymous with entering into a peace treaty with Egypt. They work a plan, but not for me. They make this alliance, but not my spirit. And I think that when it says not my spirit, it's because they're using this. Idiom, this phrase, pour out a, a libation, and there's a fluid sense. There's a correlation between water and oil and the spirit, and so it's a it's a poetic way of saying that um, they're not about my mission, they're not about my methods, they are doing their own thing, not as I will, or not as the, thou willest, O Lord, but as I will, let that be done, that kind of thing, and that's the problem of Israel, and that's the problem of. You and me, and that's the problem of our country as an aggregation of individuals that are saying, uh, Let me have my own way, and I'm going to form an alliance. Now, let's review real quick what's their motivation for this alliance? They have a problem that they're seeing. They see, they don't see God, they see the Assyrian crisis. Obviously, we have to act. We can't just be religious and believe things. We need to act, and there's a, there's a war, and we need to d- defend ourselves and find a way to fight the Assyrians. And the physical conflict that they're facing, the geopolitics in their situation is derivative of the spiritual problem they have with God. And so they're, they're tilting at windmills. They're fighting the wrong thing. They're trying to swat at the paddle, and they need to go grab the hand of the one wielding it and beg for mercy. And they won't do it. And that's the whole of the message in the Lord of History section. And by doing this, by going further, they're adding sin upon sin. They're, they're doubling down on stupidity, on folly. And that, it's so easy to see this, isn't it? From our perspective, reading this, we can see them doing this. Do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves fighting God and saying no when he's trying to bring discipline and humility? And it's better to just stop it. Stop digging and run back to him. They go down to Egypt, who go down to Egypt, um, and uh, Halak to go, and then Urad to descend. They go down uh, to Mitzrayim, to Egypt. But my mouth, but literally, my mouth, lo, sha'al. They don't ask. They don't ask my word from my mouth. They go down to Egypt for help. You go ask your father. You ever notice that people, people care who finds out when? If there's big news in your family, there is a list of people that need to know, and the order matters of the big news. You can't call aunt so-and-so because she's going to call her sister, and then you told your aunt before you told your mother, and that is not going to work out. <laughs> there's an order of precedence. There's a right way to do this, and you better get it right or that's going to be uncomfortable. And we're silly little hobbits about things, but it's a silly illustration. But there's there's a right God has to insist that his children ask of him. They won't. That's horrible. There is obvious application of this in in the time in which we live today. You still have uh, this people, this apple of God's eye, and basic rebellion against him. And that's a temporary arrangement. It will not be forever. They go down to Egypt, but my mouth, they do not ask, to take refuge in the fortress. I've translated this word fortress. It, it is a place of robust security. So a word to translate, you could call it a, a, a rock uh, refuge that an animal will go into. But I, the, the verb is to take refuge, and the noun is a word for this refuge of Pharaoh so who's the idol now what is the idol are they worshiping Baal are they worshiping Molech no they're actually giving to Pharaoh what they should be getting giving to God God should be their protection God is their rock but they're going to Pharaoh for and that's that's a that's a dumb thing to do but that's what they're doing how does this work in our lives in what way does this take place in our lives? We should find our peace and our rest in our God, but we find diversions. We find ways to avoid what we should be dealing with, and we spend our time and our energy trying to make ourselves feel better when we should be going to our God and humbling ourselves before Him and talking to Him, taking in His word. We try to find our satisfaction, our contentment in life somewhere else, our refuge in the fortress of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. So notice the pretty poetry here, to take refuge, to seek shelter, the the rock-bound fortress of Pharaoh versus the shadow of Egypt. These are two ways. Now, why is a shadow a refuge? Because you live in the Middle East and the sun, uh, he is hot. And the, then the shade ends up being a really valuable thing to, because if you don't have shade, then it's really uncomfortable. And so they're gonna go find shelter in the shadow of Egypt and, uh, and notice that this is an obvious contradiction of what they should do. If you and I could step out of our lives at any given moment of the challenges we're facing and look at what we're thinking, saying, doing at times, we could say there's an obvious better choice to make and he's doing or she's doing the wrong thing. Why won't you do the right thing? It's easy to see when you're looking at it outside the situation as an observer. We're seeing that here. But the interesting challenge is when you're in the moment and you know the right answer and you don't want the revelation of God to speak to the situation. What are you going to do? Well, we're going to go find a lawyer to help us solve our problems. We're going to go find something that'll fix it because I'm going to avoid the problem that I'm facing instead of asking God to help me solve it. And really for him to have his way in the situation. But I'm uncomfortable, I know, and the, Israel was uncomfortable in the discipline they were receiving, and they had an obvious uh, recourse, but they didn't, uh, they didn't pursue it. In verse 3, what you want is not what you'll get. It will be for you, the fortress of Pharaoh, the same word again I use for to for, translate fortress, it'll be a shame. Should be a, a defense of protection, it's just going to be a shame, it's going to be a very sour experience for you, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt is going to be an insult. So again, the poetry is really tight. Fortress of Pharaoh, shelter of the shadow of Egypt, shame and an insult. You thought it was gonna be a good idea. Well, let's try this, but it's gonna be a fail. Now, this is awesome. God, what should our foreign policy be? Well, uh, don't go down to Egypt. Okay, the Lord told us we have revelation from God, don't go down to Egypt. And that's what's happening here. Wouldn't it be nice if our government could get that kind of of, uh, real-time instruction from God? It would be great, but the interesting thing is that the people won't listen. They're going to go down to Egypt anyway, even though God, through Isaiah, is saying, "Don't do this." You know exactly what you should do because I'm telling you. And that's the nature of revelation. It's an authority problem. They won't bend the knee to their Creator and let Him uh, have His way, as far as they're concerned. And um, and they're going to be volitionally responsible for that. In verse four, for they will be in zone His princes. This is probably Judah's princes. They're going to go down, these ambassadors in this delegation are going to go down to Zone, which is in the apparently the northern part, like the north kind of eastern part of Egypt. And they're also his messengers in Hannes. Uh, this is uh, Hanes, Hanes. uh I guess the accent would be on the second syllable, so Hannes. Um, that is not Hanes or Fruit of the Loom. That's Hanes will arrive. His messengers will arrive there, and so that's their archaeologists are fighting about this, but they're, they're, they're not sure, but they think probably Southern. So it sounds like we're kind of just took a whole frame around Egypt and said, they're down there. And it's, a poet, it's poetry. They're up in zone. They're down in Khanes, They're in Egypt, thoroughly in Egypt, perhaps. And then verse five, the whole nation will be ashamed. The whole, the whole, the whole will be ashamed because of a people who did not profit. Because they're going to go rely on Egypt for their solution, but it doesn't benefit. Now, this shame problem, we talk about this. Sociologists and pop culture will talk about how, well, in these Eastern civilizations and the ancient Near East, they had an honor and shame culture. Um, And that means that we, like, somehow we don't. Everybody knows. That if people think badly of what you're doing or say something badly about it, that's a challenge to you. And public opinion matters and other people's opinions matter. And when you are on the receiving end of the, the judgment of the masses that you're wrong and you're therefore shamed... Everybody knows is a problem. It's, we call it peer pressure in our culture. It's a, it's a thing everyone deals with. But this is something that you certainly don't want to experience, that the thing you, took your, your, you put your hope in, the thing that you were expecting to solve it, becomes a poison to you, becomes a shame, because they don't profit. They are not of help and not for profit, or not for benefit, but for shame and also for reproach. So uh, God's laying it on pretty thick that you're going to not get what you want to get out of this. This is a good way to think. God says, do this this way. I'm in the situation, I believe that, but I'm in the situation and I don't really wanna do this that way. I wanna do it another way. I think this would be better, it's more comfortable, my friends tell me. I've got all kinds of reasons why and blah, blah, blah. But God said, do this this way, but I'm gonna try it this way. Okay, okay, you have the volitional freedom to do that. We all do, Israel did. And they did it collectively. We're doing it individually. You're not gonna like the outcome. God says, push the red button and then push the blue button. You say, okay, so I'm here at my buttons. I want to push the blue button and then the green button. How would that be? And God's like, I said, push the red button and then the blue button. Is that what the order? The blue, yeah. I don't want to do it that way. Well, you, you're going to find out. You're going to find out. It's better to trust him and just do it like he said. But if you don't, it's okay. You're going to find out that he meant what he said, and you're going to learn it the hard way. And that is a good way to think. And do you know what you call that when you believe that? When you think that God's way is the best way, and that if I don't do it his way, I'm not going to like the outcome? Do you know what that's called? That's called the fear of the Lord. It's that I believe who he is. I believe his word is from him and it is what he says. I believe he means what he says and I believe he's acting in the situation. So since I believe those things, I expect that if I push the buttons in the wrong sequence or I do the thing he said not to do, I expect not like what, he, what comes out of it. And that's basically the principle that Isaiah is articulating here. So in verse six, we switch over to this oracle of the behemoth of the Negev. Behemoth B-E-H-E-M-O-T-H. Now, everybody knows, if you know Buddy Davis, the behemoth is a dinosaur, dinosaur is he. I'm not sure we're talking about Brachiosaurus or whatever in this verse, but he does use the word behemoth. And this word, this feminine plural noun is a plural. Um, the, I just transliterated it here because they were doing that with Rahab, so I thought I'd do it too. Behemoth, um, it's pretty commonly used for animals. And so it's a question, but I think this is a a category word for living animals out in the Negev, in the desert area. Through the land of distress and anguish, you've got these two nouns that you don't want either of, distress and anguish. Lioness and lion from there, or from them is the literal Hebrew. I think lioness and lion come out of distress and anguish. Uh, You don't want to be in this area. And so he's Painting the picture of the route, I think, for the delegation. This is my interpretation. He's painting the picture that you're going down. The, this is not a path you want to be on. You're going through uh, a, 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 an arid desert filled with lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. The lioness and the lion from there, serpent and seraph. Uh, uh, Where's the seraph? Um, I can't read this. Oh, there it is. Saraf, m- ufef. Ufef is a um, it's a uh, for when you hear bird wings fluttering, flapping. Ufef is is it means flying, flying or fluttering. That's what this that's what this word is here. Uh, and so we believe that this means flying. Uh, saraf, burning one. And so seraph means the burning one, and one use of it in Isaiah 6 is a, a certain category of angelic creatures that have six wings. They're the burning ones, the seraphim. We say seraphim, but it's the seraphim. And, um, and so most commentators that are struggling, as I do here, with the nouns of Hebrew, especially in the animal kingdom, if, you, if, you, if I tell you to look up, um, if I tell you to imagine and you're uh, thinking, what is a nutria or a nutri? Do you know what a new tree is? It's a maybe a southern animal. Yeah. Some, it's in, new it's in the- Yeah. We, we had them in East Texas too, I'm told. But it's basically like a big marmot type type thing. Um, if I told you to imagine in your in your thinking a new tree, you would probably say, if you haven't seen one or you don't know about that, you'd probably be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I could say, well, it's a bit like a big groundhog type thing and you okay so something like a big groundhog but um but that's the way the nouns work in hebrew with the animals we would really like to see a book that has pictures next to these hebrew words to tell us what exactly that is that's why some translations will say eagle and others will say vulture and to us in america this side of greek culture and the 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 eagle symbol for uh, zeus and everything we really want to draw a distinction between eagle and a vulture you know, that, that, that's a very important thing to us, culturally, perhaps. But the big winged flying thing up there, right? And, and I'm not saying they're not specific. I'm saying we have trouble knowing exactly. The, the nouns will wear you out. The older the English translation, the more mystical and, and, and mythical the creatures get sometimes with these nouns. But the flying seraph could just be a snake that is, uh, that's moving fast, and he's moving so fast, he's flying. And so if you see like a rattlesnake strike and you didn't even see it because he's moving so quickly, that could be what he means by the flying seraph. And sometimes when a snake strikes, it leaves the ground. And some snakes actually can leave the ground physically and, uh, and jump, which is, uh, that's almost as scary as flying spiders for some of you, or jumping spiders. Okay, serpent and flying, so it's a snake that you don't want to encounter, perhaps. And they bear upon their shoulders of male donkeys riches. And upon humps of camels, their treasure. So it's this delegation to go buy off the Egyptians, to go uh, to help fight for them. And it's not, it's, they're going through a, a desert path. And by the way, the path God wants them to walk on is blessing and repentance, but they're going the other way. It's kind of a Jonah moment for uh, Judah. Upon a people who do not profit. So they, hump, they, 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 they bear upon shoulders, they bear upon humps, and they are heaping upon the Egyptians. These treasures, and that's the, that's the poetic language in the, in the prepositions. And lastly for tonight, and in Egypt, and Egypt in vanity and emptiness, they will help. Uh, Egypt, uh or u'mitzraim, uh, Chavel vanity, urik, uh, vrik, this is uh, emptiness. They will ezer, they will help. There is no help, but the help they offer is not help at all. Hey, let me help you carry that. And they're like spotting you. They're not helping. They're just kind of standing there with their hands out. Like, let me help. Careful. Well, you're not helping. Could you get the door no, <laughs> that, that's not help. They're there, but they're not helpful. That's the idea. Egypt and vanity and emptiness, they will help. Therefore, I have called this one Rahav, who has been silenced or made to cease. Rahav. Okay, the deal with Rahav, and that's why I think some of these nouns might be more um, cryptic or, or uh, f- sensational than, than the translators think sometimes. Rahav is a legendary, mythical S- Charybdis type uh, sea monster. Um, it's also the name of a lady that we meet in uh, the conquest narratives in Joshua, but that's not this. Uh, uh, this is, this is uh, probably what she's named after. It's like naming your kid Medusa or something. Um, <laughs> if you think about it, Rahab, it, it's, so there are lots of different sea monsters. There's the Le- 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 Leviathan is apparently this sea dragon uh, that breathes fire, but he's in the water. Um, that's a steamy animal right there. You've got, um, you've got this Rahab is, is this perhaps actual sea monster, like a dinosaur, or uh, the, most commentators think it's this mythical thing in the ancient Near East that they talk about, like again in the Odyssey, Charybdis and Scylla, and you have these, these monsters that are part of their legends, but it's portrayed as the great mighty power that is now silenced. So Egypt used to be this looming, towering figure that you couldn't defeat because they've got this mighty chariot and then God knocks them out with water in Exodus 14. And this is this is still the same people. They're these towering people that you think will be helpful, but they won't. And so I think that's why he calls them Rahav, um, the... Uh, Rahav, not Rahav, Rahav—the accent on the front—who has been silenced or made to cease. Well, that is verses one through seven of Isaiah thirty, and um, there's only uh, there's only thirty three verses in Isaiah thirty. So you can imagine uh, what fun we'll have as we move forward um, in this kind of closing move God does in folio one of Isaiah chapters one through thirty nine. Uh, they are fighting God's discipline instead of breaking themselves down under the weight of God's discipline and saying, God, have your way. Let it not be so with us. In fact, let's don't even bring God's discipline into the picture at all. Let's humble ourselves from just his revelation and say, God, have your way, and then Uh, move out sharply as he presents and provides what that way would be father thank you for the challenge of your word and the privilege we have to think through these things together this text of scripture is such a wonderful treasure to us And it comes with all these challenges of history, father history that is so foreign and ancient that the average person has no idea after uh, a brief stint in uh, world history in eighth grade or something. We just don't know much about what's going on or what has gone on. And it's a challenge for us because of all the many things in front of us. Thank you that you focused our attention tonight on a tragedy in national Judah where they wouldn't break themselves uh, from their rebellion against you and and just... come back to you, where they kept doubling down. And once they were disciplined, they went to try to find a solution to the discipline. Father, don't let us be fools. Give us wisdom. You've told us you give it abundantly if we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.